We're driven by the search for better. But when it comes to hiring, the best way to search for a candidate isn't to search at all. Don't search match with Indeed. Indeed is your matching and hiring platform with over 350 million global monthly visitors, according to Indeed data, and a matching engine that helps you find quality candidates fast. Ditch the busy work. Use Indeed for scheduling, screening, and messaging so you can connect with candidates faster. Leveraging over 140 million qualifications and preferences every day, Indeed's matching engine is constantly learning from your preferences, so the more you use Indeed, the better it gets. Join more than 3.5 million businesses worldwide that use Indeed to hire great talent fast. And listeners of this show will get a $75 sponsored job credit to get your jobs more visibility at Indeed.com slash BlueWire. Just go to Indeed.com slash BlueWire right now and support our show by saying that you heard about Indeed on this podcast. That's Indeed.com slash BlueWire. Terms and conditions apply. Need to hire? You need Indeed. What's up, y'all? It's Drewski, and I've teamed up with Mountain Dew to produce a hilarious new basketball podcast called The Dew Zone with Drewski. Learn the backstories of your favorite ballers and celebrities like Jamal Murray. Did you have, like, a favorite team? Was it the Raptors at the time or no? Was the Raptors even started around that time? Come on, bro. I ain't that old, fam. <laughs> You're talking like I'm 50. Taylor Rooks, Asia Wilson, and many more. You won't want to miss this. Listen to The Do Zone with Drewski on Apple Podcasts, Spotify, and wherever you listen to podcasts. Hey everyone, it's Dan Pavalli. Remember to search Blue Wire Buckets in iTunes or Spotify for more NBA content. What do you think about the Laker team now? You follow the box scores of the games every day? Just the Lakers. You're kidding. That is really a compliment. I was pleased to see you smile at the top of our show because once the game starts, you have a game face. You don't smile much out there. I don't think you have to do things for money anymore. Correct. What's up, Laker fans? Welcome to Laker Film Room Podcast, brought to you by the Blue Wire Podcast Network. I'm Pete, joined as always by Darius. This is our very first reaction pod, where we record really right after some news breaks. Uh, a couple of hours ago, the Lakers hired Frank Vogel to be their new head coach. The deal is for three years for an unreported amount of money at the moment that we record this. Jason Kidd will be brought on as a prominent assistant, quote unquote, and the rest of the coaching staff is to be determined. So uh, Darius, man, what's your reaction to the news? I like the word prominent. <laughs> oh, oh, we have so much to say and get into about the dynamics at play here. I think my first reaction is twofold. Frank Vogel's a respected head coach. He's a good head coach. He's had a certain amount of success in this league. He went to several conference finals as a coach of the, of, of a, the Indiana Pacers. He actually was hired as an interim coach originally with the Pacers. He replaced Frank O'Brien. Um, was it Frank O'Brien? Uh, Jim O'Brien. Jim O'Brien. Mm -hmm. Sorry, Frank on the mind, I guess. Yeah. yeah. So he replaced Jim O'Brien with the Pacers. And then, you know, a lot of times interim guys are exactly that. They're an interim guy. Mm -hmm. You know, they yep. are the bridge to the next guy. Keeping the seat warm. Yep. Yes. And, and Vogel basically turned that team and got that team to buy in and kept that job mm -hmm. right for, I think, six years with, with the Pacers. And that's a pretty rare thing. He didn't have like the success that Ty Lue had. Right. But Ty Lue was a very similar 
type of guy, right? He was an interim coach and then he went on to very good success and was more than just a keep the seat warm guy. And, and so in a vacuum, I, I could live with a Frank Vogel hire <laughs> as head coach. Um, we don't live in a vacuum. Yep. We live in the real world with 24-hour news cycles and Twitter reactions and sourced reporting. And the second part of my reaction to this is that the Lakers just continue to look sort of like this fumbling franchise who settled on a choice for a guy who would finally take their terms. And now um, we've got a head coach who maybe comes into the situation without the perception of authority. And the perception is that he was forced to take on an assistant coach who has his own history of, um, should I say, interesting dealings. (laughs) within organizations as as well as you know some personal history that we don't have to get into on on this pod but is you you know dicey and troubling in certain aspects so on its face i think some of this is fine the bigger backdrop though tell tells us a different story which is frustrating i think yes so you mentioned the phrase perception of authority and i think that's a good concept to build around in that Again, like you said, in a vacuum, I'd be fine with a Frank Vogel hiring. He would not be the first guy I would choose, but he is on the list of like, hey, that's an acceptable hire in the NBA in 2019, considering the available candidates. There are not guys who are obvious choices. I would have preferred Ty Lue, but things went the way that they did. And things going the way that they did and kids' presence really undermines Vogel from the get-go. The Lakers cannot in any way, shape, or form say that Vogel was their first choice or even their second choice. And the Lakers having the money that they have and not having a lot of competition around the league for guys. Monty Williams got snatched up by Phoenix. So if you want to say he preferred that job and they got beat out by competition— I don't think that was the case. I think Lou was their first choice and Lou backed away in a way that surprised them when they tried to dictate their terms. The fact that they were surprised or the the possibility that they were surprised by Lou not wanting to have terms dictated to him and not wanting a three-year deal, which Vogel ended up accepting. The fact that they were surprised by that is disheartening, but uh, I, I do believe that that is what happened. And so, yeah, Vogel comes in as third choice at, at the very best. He comes in having this assistant coach foisted on him that has a pattern of behavior throughout his life, both legal and illegal, of doing some messed up things. I think so. I would frame that as personal and professional, right? And legal and illegal, right? He's pled guilty to crimes. He he pled he he pled guilty to beating his wife. We don't have to beat around the bush yes. on that. Like that. No, no, sure. Like that, that is something that he pled guilty to. And then he got a DUI for crashing his car into a utility pole, or at least that's how he was caught by that. And look, mistakes happen. I'm, and I'm not here to moralize to, to everyone about it. Um, those things, the, the hitting his wife is something that resonates with me. Um, but if I also believe in redemption. And so, Let's put that to the side. I I just don't want to dance around it and act like it's nothing because it's not nothing. When you strictly frame it in a basketball sense, he has a history of with Lou Campanelli in 1994 was the head coach of Cal where he played his college ball. He 
led a mutiny against him and ended up with Bozeman as the coach. If I, you're an Oakland guy, is that right? It was Bozeman, his guy? I believe it was Bozeman, yes, who ended up being his coach. So later in his career, when he was with the Nets, Byron Scott was coaching that team and he led a mutiny against him. There was, when he was a head coach, he had a disagreement with Lawrence Frank, who he hired as one of the, if not the highest paid assistant in the NBA, that got so bad that it deteriorated into uh, quite the situation, right? Uh, It's too complicated to get into on here, but look up Jason Kidd and Lawrence Frank. When he was the head coach of the Nets, he tried to orchestrate a power play in order to get more power with the Nets by flirting with the Milwaukee Bucks for their vacant head coaching position and trying to get more, you know, executive power over there. The Nets ended up trading Kid to the Bucks, and that's where his last stop was. Kid left. Milwaukee is a legitimate title contender after very much not being that with him. Now, obviously, Giannis has gotten better, and there are people who believe that he was really instrumental in Giannis's development. I know Bucks fans who will shout from the mountaintops that that's not the case, but there are people who who believe that. I think that the so to be fair to Jason Kidd, the players will say that. Sure. Right? And so like one of the things that frustrates me overall and this is a side tangent rant and so just give me a second. One of the things that frustrates me in general about like sports fandom is that we often supplement our opinions and place them at a higher mm-hmm. value than the opinions of the people who are in the room yes. or the people who have direct experience with with those people. 100%. Right? And so if I'm sitting there, it, it's like, have you ever seen those Twitter screenshots where someone will tweet out an article and then there's comments down and the person who originally tweeted out the article is having this big back and forth with this know-it-all person. And then the know-it-all person says, did you even read the article? And then the person claps back and says, I wrote the article? Yes, absolutely. Some of sports fandom is exactly that. If Giannis Antetokounmpo wants to give credit to Jason Kidd for instilling whatever yeah. or helping him in in whatever way- That matters. That matters. Me, the fan, is not going to then supersede what Giannis says and say, no, 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 no. What Jason Kidd did did not actually matter, right? And so that's just a little frustration point with me. I can understand fans being frustrated with um, with lack of creativity in schemes or with um, execution stuff or with general philosophies on offensive or on offense or defense or substitution patterns or rotations or any and all of the above, right? We had those frustrations with Luke Walton. Mm-hmm. But one thing I'm not going to say is if Lonzo Ball says Luke Walton helped me in this very specific way, one thing I'm not going to do is say, I don't believe Yeah, no, that. he didn't, right? No, so so look, there are a couple of levels to that. And that's I'm so glad you brought that up. That's a frustration that I feel because look, we all will be more passionate about our causes, right? The way that players and coaches and NBA people talk about Kobe Bryant and what Kobe Bryant was as a player relative to what fans around the league, that's a, another example of that, right? It's like, these guys were wrong all the time, right? Like we crack up at Paul Pierce getting it wrong about the Boston Milwaukee series, or Charles Barkley might say something crazy. There are certain things where I feel comfortable being like, 
Now I'm fine like having a different opinion than the guy who played and that I, I think it's justified. There are other places where I think is it's in the experiential realm. Did you go through this? And do you know how this feels? That's why that's the area in which I find shows like Inside the NBA the most interesting is that when they talk about like, this is what it's like to be down 10 in a game six. And when you're down yeah. three, two, like, I'll never know how that feels. You'll never know how that feels and what you have to do and what that moment is like. That stuff's fascinating. And it's the one thing that like we can never, no matter how big of basketball fans we are, we can just never know. And so when a guy like Giannis comes out and says, Jason Kidd helped me develop, hey, that matters. That shouldn't be undercut. I will say, though, to counter the the point to a certain extent, like there's a personal relationship there where maybe Jason Kidd inspired Giannis. He gave him a certain amount of mentality, right? A, a certain amount of fundamental what you need to be able to blossom the way that he has. Built a connection with right. him. And that is... That that is for the player to speak on. That is not for us to really interject on. That is theirs, their story to tell and theirs alone. I can say that guy like Jason Kidd, by virtue of having a really crappy spacing, made Giannis's life a lot harder. By virtue of Jared Dudley having to talk Kidd into starting Giannis over Jared Dudley a couple of years ago, when Giannis was very much ready for that, that probably hindered Giannis a bit. Um, and, and so certain things like that, I do feel comfortable speaking on. Yes, I agree. <clears throat> I think that there are times, and we see this all of the time in interpersonal relationships, I think in, in our own lives or with people who we have maybe close relationships with friends or family members or whatever, that when you're inside a situation, you don't always necessarily see the bigger picture about what is actually best right. for you. Yeah. Like some of us aren't close enough, but some of us are too close to see the bigger picture. All, all of that cuts both ways. And so I'm on the same page with you with that for sure. So let's talk about Frank Vogel a little bit and about just, just yes. him as a coach, maybe outside of the surrounding context with Kid. Um, I'd feel so much better about him if there were easy, easier ways to get to Frank Vogel than how they got to him, right? Like if he was in that initial yeah. pool of people and they negotiated with Lou, but it didn't work out and they could plausibly go be like, Hey, we really like Frank Vogel and we wanted to want to hire him. It's harder. Yeah. He was one of our first four guys, right? If he, if it was instead of Juwan Howard, if it was Frank Vogel sure. who was interviewed, we might be looking at this differently, but go on. Yeah. Yeah. That, that's absolutely, that's absolutely the case. There are just easier ways to, to get to him. And this is something that I know is a frustration of yours about their inability to control the messaging. And we discussed this when in the last pod, when Ty Lu walked away from negotiations is like, this is the simple stuff, right? This is the, the stuff that, uh, should be fairly easy, regardless if you agree with the coaching hire or not, this doesn't need to be dramatic. In, in how you get there. And the Lakers are always these days unnecessarily dramatic when it comes to simple things. Now, I am still in my first impression stage of Vogel. I have done a couple of days worth of research on him, but I'm still in the weeds and I, I need a, several more to have my fully fleshed out opinions. But um, I consider him, from what I've seen on a first impression basis, to be a below average offensive coach. I think his set plays are actually pretty good. His ATOs, they're slow to develop. He will, he's the kind of guy that will run like three or four actions before like the first actual threat is employed off of that. And he can have 
weak spacing within that, meaning that he can run like a nice little flare or hammer set or, you know, some, some sort of rip screen and, or a guy coming off of a, of, of a, uh, a down screen. And, but that guy like catches it 21 feet away from the basket, you know, like not behind the three point line. And he does not seem to value that as much. Um, I, I've liked what I've seen on the defensive end. The numbers reflect that as well, but I need to get deeper into that tape. His play by principle stuff on the offensive end leaves a lot to be desired, uh, in terms of creating space. That, honestly, it comes down to that for me. It's like, there are a lot of spacing principle issues. I, I don't expect you to have, you know, full recall of Vogel as a coach, but outside of all of this, with what you saw of him in Indiana and Orlando, what do you think of him kind of in between the lines? Well, I think that. One of the most important things that a coach brings to the table is actually not X's and O's. Yeah. It is the ability to generate and maintain buy-in. Vogel's teams, especially his Indiana teams, played hard. They played hard. Yes, they did. And he had a mishmash of character types of players too, right? Like his first really successful run of players with Indiana was that Paul George, David West, Roy Hibbert, led group with Lance Stevenson and George Hill. We just had our own Lance experience, mm-hmm. right, with well, with the Lakers. And I think overall Lance was fine. Um, he was a competitive guy who didn't always, you know, color inside the lines, which is totally fine. Um, everyone can be a bit eccentric or, or play however they want, I guess. But those other guys were sort of like consummate professional types. Mm-hmm. And so maybe you're not going to necessarily give Vogel the credit for motivating them, but Vogel certainly kept their interest and had them consistently playing playing well and playing hard. Teams who are consistently good defensively, I don't necessarily always say that that's just personnel. Sure. Um, I think that that schematics and its motivation mm-hmm. as well. You and I have preached this over the years um, that we've been doing this pod and even just within general calm conversations is this idea of look like defense is so much about want and the Lakers haven't had enough of that consistently last year was especially the case and Vogel's teams at least his Indiana teams did and so that's something that's important to me um, we'll see if schematically the changes in the league if he's still there mm-hmm. at that level, because it's been a while since those indie years, right? Right, and he didn't have the most successful tenure in his one season or in Orlando. Yeah, I mean that team was bad, right? Like they were they were basically a tanking team. I mean, but but Steve Clifford took a not totally different squad the very following year to the playoffs. That's right. I do think that Vogel was hired within the context of we want to make a push. Mm-hmm. And if you recall, last season in Vogel's last year in in Orlando, remember the Magic were sort of that fluky team out of the gate. They were really good. Uh-huh. I think they started eight and four. Mm-hmm. People were just like, "Oh, here's Frank Vogel again, like getting the most out out of a team." That didn't last. Um, it turned out that. Orlando was just shooting the ball incredibly well. I think Aaron Gordon started shooting the ball at like a 45 or 47% clip from behind the arc. And he ended up cooling off and being a low 30s, three, three point shoot shooter. I think Vogel did a decent enough job in, in Orlando. And then things just fell apart on him in, in a way that he just couldn't keep the reins. And then he didn't get 
fired by the same people who hired him, a whole new administration came in and they hired a new guy. They're like, we didn't hire you. We have no allegiance to you. Ownership was willing to eat the money. And that was that. So I don't really have much on Vogel from his Orlando stint. They were a bad team. They'd been a bad team. Steve Clifford is known to sort of turn around teams like this. And so good on Steve Clifford. Like, I think that he's a really good NBA coach. And he's another guy who was an assistant. And if things would have lined up in a certain way, um, I would have much preferred to have hired Steve Clifford over like Byron Scott. Right. When Byron Scott was hired, mm-hmm. it just turned out that those jobs weren't open at the same time. Like Clifford had gotten hired in Charlotte before that. So that's neither here nor there. That's just, you know, me wishing that the Lakers had never hired Byron Scott. I sure. <laughs> yeah, it was funny how we went from that amazing assistant coaching staff with Quinn Snyder and Ettore Messina and Clifford under Mike Brown to, uh, you know, what we've had on on later coaching staffs. Um, One small point that I, and actually it's not small at all. One real notch in Frank Vogel's belt is player development. Paul George, Roy Hibbert, heck, even, even Lance, right? When Vogel got there, they were at different stages of development, but he helped them grow quite a bit. And it just, again, I'd feel so much better about this hiring if we got here in a different way. And if I felt like he was empowered, I'm so concerned by the kid dynamic and by the LeBron James element of this. And we're going to get to that in a moment. But first, I want to give it a shout out to my, my folks at Harry's Blue Wire is teaming up with Harry's to make sure that our listeners are shaving comfortably. Go to harrys.com backslash blue wire to save $10 on a value trial set, which includes a five blade razor with a lubricating strip and trimmer blade, rich lathering shave gel, travel blade cover, and you get all of that for just $3 shipped right to your door. Enough with the cheap razors. It's totally worth trying Harry's. Harry's is fixed shaving by combining a simple, clean design with quality and and durable blades at a fair price. Harry's founders were tired of paying for razors that were overpriced and overdesigned. Harry's bought a world-class blade factory in Germany that's been making quality blades for over 95 years. Join the 10 million who've tried Harry's. Claim your trial offer by going to harrys.com backslash bluewire. All of Harry's blades come with a 100% quality guarantee. If you don't love your shave, let them know and they'll give you a full refund. Again, make sure you go to harrys.com backslash bluewire, and that's one word, to redeem your razor for $3. Let me jump in really quickly because one of the things that you were talking about was the optics of this. And I want to say this now just because we've brought it up a couple of times and I haven't just dropped my two cents yet. I I mentioned it earlier, but the Lakers' inability to sort of control the narrative or at least direct the narrative. I actually don't think the Lakers will ever be able to truly ever control a narrative. They're the Lakers. It's like when you have a gigantic spotlight on you all of the time, everyone is going to see all those little cracks a little bit easier. And they're going to pick those out and sort of report on them in in a way I do not think there's ever really truly a way to cover those up. Um, So controlling the narrative, I think is sort of out the window, I think, um, managing and steering and sort of directing the narrative are adjectives I would use instead. And the Lakers have failed at that pretty miserably. And this is like a chief frustration of mine. And I think that it bleeds over into fan frustrations that manifest themselves in things like, I don't know, protests outside of Staples Center. (laughs) Yeah. Right. Like they're just things that are going to be brought to the Lakers doorstep 
that are totally unnecessary based off of their inability to to get out in front of things in in a way where they are clearly explaining or offering up um, direction and background to sort of where they see the organization going. Mm. And, and I just needed to sort of say, we'll, we'll say that. You can totally change gears now, but I just wanted to make sure that that got said because um, I think it, it's just an undercurrent that seems to just be getting stronger at this point with, with the organization. And until they figure out a way to manage that, all of this stuff is going to be viewed through a certain type of prism that's going to make it harder for the organization to sort of win the public relations battle, which I think really matters when you're in a big market like Los Angeles, just like it matters for an organization like the Knicks. All of the cracks get amplified by the amount of coverage that the Lakers get. I've said this before, but when I talk to my friends who have responsibilities covering both the Lakers and Clippers, like they're, they marvel at the difference between what matter, like this sort of stuff. A lot of what happens with the Lakers happens with other teams. Now the Lakers have taken this to a very wild <laughs> degree and they, I'm not, I don't want to act like every organization is like the Lakers, but like little things when they happen with the Clippers, they like, no one really cares that much when little things that happen with most teams happen with the Lakers. It's on national TV shows and it's amplified to the nth degree. And there's actually, there's a good side to that and there's a bad side of that. If they can control the good side of that, as, as you were alluding to, like there's a lot of advantages in terms of your appeal around the league. And, and is this the place that, that people want to be? And heck, I still hope I, even with all of this craziness that's gone on, I still have hopes that the Lakers will be able to execute this summer. I think it'll be more likely LeBron who's at the forefront of that. But yeah, the Lakers have, have been very, done a very poor job of, of that. Now, let us switch gears to the LeBron element. David McMenamin went on TV right after the the hiring of Frank Vogel to kind of explain. And now Dave obviously has longtime connections with LeBron and his camp. And he said that, you know, LeBron's going to be professional. He made some allusions to, you know, LeBron and kid starting rumors <laughs> and, and things of that. It was if I can characterize it, and I don't believe you've heard it, Darius can correct me if I'm wrong on that. I, I actually did. Oh, you did? Fan- fantastic. I watched this sports center hit um, before we recorded just to make sure. I was just trying to gather like what people who I respect, like what they were saying. So do you think it's fair to say that it was a tepid reaction to the Vogel hiring? If, if, if McMenamin is speaking for or from LeBron's camp when he reports that, it you know, am I coloring it too much with my own opinion by saying LeBron was kind of lukewarm about it? I would say that the way that I would characterize um, McMenamin's perspective on how LeBron would be is that um, it'll be wait and see a little bit. So I think he's going to offer respect and he's going to offer professionalism because that's like his general MO. Right. Like the stuff that Dave said about like LeBron's professionalism, he's to me, I took that as that's a given with LeBron. So that's what you can expect from him. Right. It wasn't, oh, he's going to come in and be professional because of any sort of respect for Vogel. Mm -hmm. 
it was because of LeBron's respect for the game and respect for the process and respect for everything else that is totally independent of circumstance or environment or anything else. In the same way that we knew how, so just compare it to this. We knew how LeBron felt about, say, um, what's the owner's name in Cleveland? <laughs> Dan, Dan Gilbert. Gilbert. Uh-huh. We know that LeBron was on rocky terms with Dan Gilbert when he returned to Cleveland this, the second time. You never heard a peep from LeBron. No subtweets, no Instagram likes, none of that around stuff that would offer any sort of inference that him and Gilbert were truly butting heads behind the scenes, like coming from LeBron specifically, right? We may have heard reports throughout his time there. It's just like, oh, they're still not on the greatest terms or whatever, but none of that was manifested from outward action by LeBron. And and he never does that. He never goes out there and puts his name on it. That's part of how, yeah, he's able to... That's part of the reason why he's LeBron James. And like... (laughs) In a certain way, like this is part of his legacy too, right? Like if LeBron played a different sport or something, he might be a slalom skier because all those things, he just dodges them, man. Mm -hmm. He is like in and out. None of those stuff are ever hitting him face on. And he's great at that. And so good on LeBron. The part of Dave's reporting that I found most interesting, I didn't actually take this as his relationship from LeBron, but more Dave's experience in dealing with Los Angeles. Because if you remember, Dave was a Lakers beat reporter for ESPN before he went to Cleveland Mm -hmm. to cover the Cavs upon LeBron's return. Dave knows that in Los Angeles, especially, and then his experience with LeBron then comes into play here too. His comment about what happens if it's a late game situation that's like crazy or tight or whatever, and LeBron is seen talking to Jason Kidd rather than talking with Frank Vogel, that is going to serve the narrative of undermining Vogel's authority even more, even though that type of interaction happens all the time with NBA teams. Like player X talking to assistant coach Y about whatever is going on in a late game situation. But under the magnifying glass that exists with the Lakers, that could start a wildfire that then just stokes the flames and creates a story that maybe shouldn't be a story. And that's the sort of navigating that's going to need to happen now based off of the player's um, and when I say the players, I don't mean LeBron. I'm, I mean like the figures and the variables that come with them because of their reputations, right? And that's just not LeBron's reputation. That's kids' reputation as well. You don't, very much so. And if <laughs> if those factors weren't at play, like I'd be like, cool, hey, let's roll into this offseason. Like, again, I'm so conflicted right now because of the how rather than the who, although the who in kids' cases, a big part of like why I'm uncomfortable is if we could get a coaching staff, like if they're on the same page and kid is truly an assistant to him, even if I despise him on a personal level and I have concerns about him as a coach, one of the things that I want the very most with this organization, and it's foundational to any successful organization in basketball or beyond, is everybody rowing in the same direction. Are we on the same page? Are we working toward the same goal with a clear chain of command and leadership? If we can get this group of people to do that, I'd be okay with this group of people. It's in their respective roles, at least. I 
have so many questions. Like I'm I, like, it seems absurd to me that like, we'll look back at this. Even if you get Kyrie or if you get Kawhi, if one of them walk in here, like we're going to be a good team. That's not going to be something that they can screw up to that degree. But it's hard for me to think that we'll be able to get the most out of what we get from a talent perspective with this group if they're not working together. And I just don't see a high degree of likelihood for cooperation. Well, I just see it this way, too, is that let's say that in a perfect world, everything is working together. All these guys are rowing in in the same direction. I think that there's just a certain amount of outside forces that will be at every turn sort of trying to corrupt that. Very much so. That just creates, it creates an environment where there's energy that will need to be committed to to tackling these other forces as well, rather than just being able to row in the same direction. And this is where, and I said this on on Twitter, that it's so sort of on brand for these Lakers right now to identify people and look at them in in singular ways. Like, oh, Jason Kidd is really good at player development. Like, look how well he helped <laughs> Giannis and and Chris Middleton and maybe even like Malcolm Brogdon mm-hmm. or whatever, sure. right? Players who are core players for one of the best teams in the league right now and, and, and sort of help them advance in their careers or help instill an identity or mentality in, in them that will serve them well for the rest of their careers, right? Which is important. It's so on brand for the Lakers to maybe look at that and say, we want that while maybe not placing the proper weight on all of the other things that come with bringing in that person and how that could impact the larger thing, right? It's And I compared it to the way that they filled out last season's roster, mm-hmm. right? Like, oh, it'd be great to have these competitive guys and it'd be great to have all these playmakers without sort of understanding that, yeah, well, these playmakers also like to break the offense and these really competitive guys have also known been known to maybe mope when things don't go go their way and are we giving those other factors the proper weight i feel like the lakers have looked at this from a best case scenario sit well situation only if things do go the best case scenario then i think that they have a chance to do something potentially special but we all know, man, life is never just this straight line path towards your best case scenario. There are always hiccups. There are always hurdles. There are always twists that are going to test you. And the interesting thing will be is how these specific groups of people respond to that because the way that we've seen with Kid and maybe even some of like LeBron teams, how those groups have responded at times have not always been the best. And that's why I think that your idea of like, I have a hard time seeing them being able to row in the right direction. It's not that they're not capable. It's more that that will be chipped away at in all these different ways throughout the course of however long that they're together. That just makes it hard, not necessarily because they won't have the want to, if that makes sense. So what you're saying here really hits home for me on a personal level. This is a personal weakness of mine that I'm aware of and I've been working on for the last couple of years is 
I have the tendency to see the best in someone and really zero in on that to the point where I am, I can be oblivious to where they have weaknesses, where they're dangerous to be around or, or be associated with. I, uh, and that seems to fit what you're describing here, right? Like, hey, kid did a great job of player development. We can, we can argue the, merits of the truth of that or not but say you believe that kid is great at player development that you know on a team with a bunch of young guys i could see how that would make sense to somebody and i could see a person like myself zeroing in on like oh they're great at that and i really like that right and so i really put a lot of value on that so i'm going to overlook all of these other red flags because i find this one thing to be so important and then in my mind right as i'm putting this whole thing together that's going to be my player development guy there's going to be my offensive coordinator my head coach is really good on defense we've got the total package to be successful but in doing that putting together actually a very toxic situation because of how much i overlooked the weaknesses of those people and how those things would interact. And that's something I've, I've gotten better at since I've been able to identify that that's a weakness of mine. But that is something I deeply relate to. And I think you really hit the nail on the head on kind of what that means and what that can turn into. You and I, and I said this before we started to, to record, and I sound like a broken record because I feel like I say this on the pod a lot and I say it in my daily life, life a lot, but humans are complicated. Like interpersonal relationships are complicated and we're just dealing with people. These are all people interactions and finding the right mix and the right leadership to guide that mix and be able to sort of like snuff out where things are going a little bit awry and how can we get things back on track. Those are real skill sets. Recent history tells us that I should probably be truly skeptical that the Lakers are valuing that in a real way. Mm -hmm. Because I know that a team like the Warriors value that, right? Like Bob Myers and Steve Kerr, these ultra like thoughtful and sort of like like expansive worldview people who are constantly looking at like building people relationships. You read that great Baxter Holmes story about Greg Popovich mm -hmm. and bringing people together like over like food and wine and, and like the culture that he's building on like a personal and people level and, and trying to make sure that all of these interactions co-mingle in a productive way. And there are times where I feel like that's just not being given the proper weight by the Lakers. And, and I think that the kid hire specifically speaks more to that to me than anything else. And that's why it's sort of like, eh, I, I just didn't want him around Yeah, as an assistant, definitely not as a head coach. The head coach stuff to me was much more like schematic and he's the guy who's in charge. And so he's the one who's dictating all, all of these things. And this is like leaving aside the personal stuff that we said at the beginning. This is just from a professional standpoint. But as an assistant coach, some of those like personal professional things come into play a little bit more because he's sort of second in command and like the stuff that he's shown as wanting to angle for more power and things like that and how the, that perception of him carries a certain weight and now you've thrown that into an environment where LeBron's already viewed as a guy who wants to run things behind the scenes and you're like mixing all of these parts together again you're not controlling the narrative 
very well. And you're sort of, in fact, inviting these types of stories and thoughts to sort of make their way into the dialogue and conversation around your team. And all that does is, is do a disservice to what you're actually trying to accomplish. It's like you're, you're hustling backwards. And, and I just don't get it. Just from that perspective, I just do not get it. And the decision-making then feels like very suspect to me. And until someone gets out in front and sort of speaks to this stuff, then we're going to fill the vacuum ourselves. And we're just going to talk and talk and talk. And that's bad for them. There, there's a certain wisdom that comes with living and failing and starting from the bottom that when you when you're able to do that and climb your way to the top like like who the hell was greg greg popovich he did not have any like systemic advantage to become one of the greatest coaches in nba history right he was he played you know in in i want to say at, at army or at one of the military academies i know he went to one to one of the military academies he started out his coaching career at like pomona fitzer or something like that some division 3 yeah. college right there is nothing there was nothing handed to him. He made mistakes along the way that he learned from and he rose all the way to the top and is one of the two or three greatest coaches in NBA history and some people would argue the greatest in NBA history. And he was able to get there by making those mistakes, gaining that experience and learning from them. I think one of the things that we're suffering from in this organization is at the top with the bus kids and this was true of Jim Bus too not just Genie, is that they skipped past all of the experience. So like they were always going to be successful as the son of a as the son and daughter of a billionaire. They were always going to have a comfortable life in which they were uh, taken care of and had a prominent position, regardless of their merits. But even if you're if you do have some talent in some areas, and I believe that almost everyone has talent in something. But you did not go through the experiences along the way to get there. I think you're more prone to not seeing what you haven't gone through before. Like I find myself at 38 years old having a lot of experiences where I'm like, oh, I've seen that before in some way or shape in my life, right? It may be manifested in a different way, but I'm like, oh yeah, yeah, I've done this before. And I remember how this went. I remember how I screwed this up or how this went well. Um, and I'm able to draw upon that experience that, and look, I'm not a, I didn't grow up rich and maybe I have a totally twisted version of, of what that's like. But I suspect that the foibles of someone like Jason Kidd may fall on deaf ears to somebody like Janie Buss or other decision makers, right? Uh, so that, you know, let, let's hope that it all works out. Let's hope that this is something that we can, that they can row in the same direction. I'm obviously unhappy about the kid component of this, but um, yeah. I, I'm willing to give all of this a chance. You got any final thoughts, my man? We've been waiting a long time to figure out like who's going to be the next coach and what's it all going to look like. And now essentially the pieces are, are in place. I don't necessarily think that we have to be happy about it right in the immediate aftermath. What I would tell all, like all people though, is, is that don't necessarily allow your initial reactions to only to be the place where you dig your heel in the sand and say, or in the ground and say, this is what it is forever. Absolutely. Right. Like I think that, and I'm not saying that I'm optimistic about them or some sort of phony, like 
they deserve a chance <laughs> like anyone else, right? No, that's not what, what I'm saying. What I am saying, though, is that the choices are made. These are the people who are in charge. I think that they bring some some positives and we have spent pretty much the last 40 minutes or so talking about several negatives that that are on the board. I want to see how this plays out. I also want to hear from the decision makers who put these people in place to sort of get some some more information and more data that's going to inform a more long-term view. Pete, you started the, this conversation with this is a reactionary pod. And I think that that's exactly what, what, what this is. It's, it's a reaction to the first piece of news. You're going to dive into well to the tape. I'm going to do similar expositions on information that is out there about these specific coaches and we're going to get to a point where they're going to introduce them. I think the media is frothing at the mouth to sort of <laughs> get a Rob Palinka or whoever else in front of a microphone to answer some some questions as well because we didn't get them at exit interviews. We didn't get them after Magic Johnson resigned. We haven't gotten them throughout any of this process, right? And so I think it'd be good to hear from some decision makers, just as I think it will be good to hear from Frank Vogel and, hey, maybe even Jason Kidd. It'd be nice to see if the Lakers, after failing so badly at sort of shaping the narrative, to see if they can sort of have a nice little comeback and try to win the press conference, because they're going to really need to with this one, I think. Well, their uh, their history of winning the public relations end of things is not encouraging. So it will certainly be interesting if nothing else. One final thought on this is if this is going to work and God, I hope it does. I hate talking about the Lakers like this. Like this is not fun for me to be in this place. Um, the Lakers have to start next season really well. If the Lakers start out slow and there is no basis for respect professionally, when the hard times hit, this is going to get ugly again due to the dynamics at play. So uh, I think that's a good place to wrap it up. Thank you for listening. You've been listening to Laker Film Room Podcast, and we will catch you guys next time. Just give me a chance to think. It takes me a little while to get wound up. I know it does take you a while to think. Rebound of Lottie. Nice rebound. The block. Oh, magic ahead. Go to face. Goes under and scores. I think that is a cosmetic call, baby. Okay, kid, you're all right in my book. Will you get these idiots out of here? <laughs>